I would like to speak to you tonight from the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 13, and in particular verse 5, which reads as follows, um, I will never leave you nor forsake you. <clears throat> but in order to get the, the full picture, as it were, I think it's necessary that we should read uh, Hebrews 13 from verse 1 to verse 6. So if you'll please turn to that and we'll just, I'll just read through that portion. <clears throat> Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. <clears throat> Marriage is honourable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. <clears throat> now, as I have indicated to you, I'm going to... Uh, complete the sermon at least by looking at Hebrews 13 verse 5 but I do want for us to go back into the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 31 where Moses addresses the people of Israel and what the one thing that he says to them is that a word from God that um, I will never leave you nor forsake you he says the same thing to Joshua in the same chapter. And then just a little further on in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, there God himself pledges to Joshua that he would never leave him nor forsake him. So it's that that I wish to speak to you tonight from God's word. And so you may wonder to yourself, why the reading from Ruth why did we read the first chapter of Ruth this evening? And just to try and uh, sum up what is being said in that first chapter, <clears throat> you're looking at a family that left Bethlehem during a time of very severe famine and settled in Moab where they were adequately provided for. And in the outworking of God's providence, Elimelech, the husband and the father, died. And ten years later, this was followed by the death of his two sons, Marlon and Kilian, leaving Naomi alone and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Why was it a problem? It's not just the physical loss of a husband, a father, and, of course, uh, in-laws. It's not just that, you see. It meant that for that little group, that small family of women, that great hardship lay ahead for them, great financial hardship. 
And it was just at that time that Naomi received word that in Jerusalem God had once again favoured his people and that there was food sufficient to be found in Bethlehem. And so it was that Naomi made the decision. She was going to return back home to Bethlehem. It wasn't a terribly long journey, although for the woman it would have taken a while, probably about two or three days, being about 60 or so miles from where they would have lived in Moab <coughs> and journeying back to Bethlehem. What does Naomi do, though? She knows that her two daughters-in-law are of pagan descent, Orpah, and Ruth, very much two pagan women. We do not know if the grace of God had made any impression upon those two women. But it's interesting that when Naomi says to the two women, look, I'm going back home. You go back to your parental home. You'll go back to your mother's home. Go back. Don't come with me. I can't provide for you. I can't help you. The best thing in the circumstances here is for you, Orpah and Ruth, go back to your parental home. In time you'll find another husband and so on. But Ruth's response is utterly heartwarming. It's true that Orpah goes back, she listens to Naomi's counsel, but Ruth does not. And her response truly just touches the heart when she speaks to Naomi and says this, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried, the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. That's Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17. What was Ruth doing? She was binding herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was, in effect, saying, from a human perspective, Naomi, I will never leave you or forsake you. It was a pure, sincere human response. And when you look then at what the scripture says when it states those words, I will never leave you nor, nor forsake you, that's God speaking in every case. And how much more powerful and meaningful is it not when God says those same words? These are not just nice things to hear. But this is God speaking to you and me in our different circumstances. And he's pledging to you as a believer that he will be with you and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You're his child. He gave his son to die for you. He gave you faith to believe in him and to repent of your sins. When God does that, when the living God, our God does that, through his son Jesus Christ, there is no possibility then that he can at any stage of your life then abandon you. If you're in the faith, 
He binds himself to you and he will not abandon you. And that's the precious promise that you find. Far stronger, far stronger than anything that Ruth could say to Naomi. And this is what I want for us to look at tonight. That most stunning statement that God makes. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, let's look at it from the first point of view of God's promise to Israel. God's promise to Israel. You'll find this in Deuteronomy and uh, chapter 31 and verse 6. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6. God's promise to uh, Israel. Now, what is happening here is that Moses has gathered all the people together, all Israel, and he is speaking to them. They're about to enter into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And so he wants to give his final word to them, as it were. And this is what he says in verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them, the Canaanites. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. That was God's word through Moses to Israel, the nation. Now, the Israelites had lived in the wilderness for some 40 years, and probably most of them did not really know their former lives as slaves in Egypt. Their parents had died away over over 40 years in the wilderness. And why was it so that the Children, their descendants then would not have known about slavery in Egypt. It would have been something foreign to them. Well, one of the things that comes across is that God had been chastening his people. It would have been so delightful, would it not, if they had been able to simply leave Egypt and enter Canaan. But unbelief was the bar for them getting into Canaan. And so it was that for 40 years God had to chasten and discipline the people of God, Israel, because of their unbelief. It was a failure to grasp the truth that the God who had delivered them in such great power from the Egyptians, who had brought them across uh, the, dead, the, the, uh, the Red Sea into the wilderness in such power, was the same God who in his power could get them into Canaan. His power wasn't restricted. It hadn't somehow decayed and become less. It was still the same, same God with the same power to deliver his people. So it was really a new generation. A new generation that had not seen God at work in Egypt. They had only witnessed the immediate, had seen God's power to provide food for them every single day in that miraculous way as manna came from heaven. In the wilderness where water was not plentiful, God provided lots of water for the people and their animals. As they were living in the wilderness and wandering from place to place over those 40 years, God protected his people in power so that the foreign nations antagonistic to them did not touch them. So that new generation knew something of the power of God, 
but it wasn't on the same level as their fathers who had seen God deliver them from Egypt and so on. But then too, there was their faithful leader, Moses. And Moses, at this particular point in Deuteronomy 31, is at the end of his life. He has not got many days to live. The end of his life is approaching. And he would not be the one to lead them into the land of promise. The nation had fought and conquered the kings of Zion and Og. But what? But what would the future hold then as they actually entered into Canaan and as they had to fight with the Canaanites and displace them and dispel them and put them to death in conflict? How would they survive then as a nation? And you can then think that there's Moses speaking to the people and in their own hearts, though perhaps they would not admit to it, was the fact of them thinking to themselves, can we really enter Canaan? Was there not a nagging fear that maybe God would let them down? Possibly, we cannot be sure of that. But there was concern because of an unknown future. So then, when Moses speaks to the nation, it's God speaking to them. And he's trying to allay their fears and their concerns and their worries, their dread. And what more precious word could it have been than this? He will not leave you nor forsake you. A precious promise indeed. And so there is the loving kindness of God who gave both Moses and Israel this most encouraging, the most encouraging assurance possible the Lord your God who who, is the one who goes with you he will not leave you nor forsake you the Lord committed himself to care for and protect his people he would be with them each step of the way we also need to remember something here and it's important to remember that the entrance into Canaan was also dependent upon the uh, upon obedience to God's uh, covenant with them. He would be their God, but they had to be obedient to him, so they had to obey him. And th- th- this also then uh, featured in this uh, particular uh, situation. There's the covenant God, the covenant promise, and they had to believe it, they had to trust it, you see. And once again, it makes that promise of God, I will never leave you <coughs> nor forsake you, all, that, all, all the clearer, all the more powerful, you see. He would be with them. As we think of that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, as you have it in the Old Testament, it corresponds, as it not, to Hebrews 13 and verse 5. But it is a promise that is far stronger because the Lord Jesus Christ is our substitute, you see. And he is the one who has paid the debt of your sin and mine, and he has given us his righteousness. And hence, as a redeemed sinner, you are assured of the presence and the power of God in your life until finally 
you are with Christ in heaven, where you will always be with him. That's the hope that we have. That was something of the hope that Israel had. God could get them into Canaan. And we have something far greater, a far greater hope than ever we could imagine. Well, that is God's word then to the nation of Israel. It's unusual, but the nation hears that promise. This is a word for you from God. But let's look in the second place at the promise that God made to Joshua, or God's promise to Joshua. And this is found in two separate sections again. God's promise to Joshua. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8. And I'm going to read from verse 7 to verse 8 so that we get the, the full picture. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And there's God's word to Joshua. Moses brings him before all the people. He, Moses, is soon to die. And Joshua is the one who would take over from him, you see. And that is the remarkable thing that we are looking at here. Who was this Joshua, after all? Was he not the one who had become a trusted and beloved assistant to Moses? He was. Was he not the one man together with Caleb who said to the children of Israel and to Moses, we can get into Canaan. You know, God can do it for us. Don't doubt. Let's do it. And here's that self-same Joshua. And Moses says of him, he's to be the one to bring you into the land of Canaan. And so the message from God through Moses was, he will be with you, he will not leave you, nor forsake you, do not fear, nor be dismayed. And this is preceded in verse 7 with two commands, urging Joshua to be strong and courageous. He's to be strong and courageous. He's not to be filled with fear. And with it came the promise then, the assurance that the Lord would fulfill his covenant promise that was made to the patriarchs years before, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, that he would give them the land of Canaan. And the language then that you find at the end of verse 7 is emphatic because it is in effect saying this, you, you, Joshua, shall receive Canaan as a permanent possession. So Joshua would see it. The children of Israel would see it. Uh, Here it is in the strongest possible way of expressing it. But then, just going on to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, 
you find there that the Lord is now speaking himself to Joshua. Moses has died. Moses is no longer on the scene. And there is Joshua, and he has the responsibility of leading uh, Israel. And this is God's word to him. Verse 5, Joshua 1. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. God spoke to Joshua to encourage him greatly. The Lord committed himself to be with Joshua. Now, <clears throat> we've just been through some interesting times in our own um, country. We've seen a, a prime minister who resigned and left that office. And there's all the vying for a new prime minister. There's one thing that should become very plain and apparent to each one of us that to be the leader of a country is no easy task. It's hard. It's extremely demanding. People will look at you in every possible way. They'll try and, fault, try and find fault and so on. <clears throat> so to lead a nation is indeed no easy task. And no doubt Joshua himself recalled the complaining of the people. <clears throat> Perhaps it was <clears throat> that he also knew just too well the love of the people for their idols and their lack of love to God. Very much aware of that. He recognized their unbelief and their disobedience. He knew it too well. He knew that in their hearts they feared the people of Canaan whose land they were to occupy. And these would be the very things that he would face as he led the people in the future and into the land of Canaan. <clears throat> and in times when he would, would feel that it was just too much for him, times when he would be overwhelmed by the challenges here was the promise of God for him, for Joshua. I will not leave you nor forsake you. <clears throat> now, if the Lord has entrusted you as fathers with leadership in your family, as a Christian father, what would you want for your children? whom God has given you, would you not want for them to come to the place where you, where they believe in the Saviour that you love and you serve, that you believe in? I do believe that you would want to see your children converted. So what are you going to do about it? <clears throat> you will pray privately for your children, perhaps in your private devotions, Lord, bring my son, my daughter, my children to the Saviour. But will you not also gather your children to yourself at day's end? And will you not read the scriptures to them? And will you yourself as a father not set the tone, 
by praying with them. Those are the things that you will do. And why are you doing it? Because you want to see your children following Jesus Christ. You will make it your business to bring your children to church. And perhaps the children may not appreciate that and find it really irksome at times. But you bring them. You know, perhaps it is too that your children are on your hearts, you see. And you love your children as a Christian father and mother should, of course. And you want them to become believers. But there are times when you will come home from work and it's been one of those harrowing days. And you come home, say, at six, and the children are all delighted to see you. And perhaps they'll come to the door and welcome you, throw their arms around you and just express in their own childish way their affection and their love for you. Isn't that great? It touches your heart and takes away some of the burden of the day that you've had to face as a father. Uh, but then, but then, no sooner are you home than your children are fighting with one another. And they're complaining, and they're saying, Johnny did this to me, Dad. And, and there's this almost war going on as they seek to uh, try and vie with each other and to complain and so on. Well, that's what they do. They'll squabble and argue. And so it carries on, and perhaps you'll put an end to it. And you come to the dinner table... And we're eating together. And what happens there? You find your children are complaining about the food. It's not quite to their liking. I'm not going to eat that. You know I don't like peas. Why have you given me peas tonight? That kind of thing, you see. Complaining, grumbling. They complain about the portions they've got. Too little, too big. The food is too hot, it's too cold. Complain, complain, complain. There you are as the dad. You've come home, these are your children that God has given you. And you just think to yourself, if I may say this politely, what utter little hooligans they are. <laughs> That's what you may think. Dear Father, Christian Father, Here's the promise of God in his word to you as you seek to lead your children. I will never leave you or forsake you. You can feel so utterly unable even at the end of a day as I've tried to describe to you of wanting to read the word of God to them to pray. You may not even want to do it. But there's God's promise and it's for you. It's for me. And that's what we are to do. And so God will be your help. <clears throat> Some have leadership roles in the church and you will know the discouragement of those who complain about, say, the content of a sermon. I don't think there's a preacher who has not heard somebody say something about, why did you preach that? Why did you say this? You know, Surely that's not necessary and so on. As a preacher, you will often hear people saying, but you preached far, far too long. You know, you could have said that in 15 minutes and you went on for 45. And you can just sense the kind of 
a critical spirit that there sometimes is, not willing to see what God is saying in his word. Perhaps it is the hymn choices. There's a lot of pressure on churches today. Sing the modern hymns. Sing the hymns that all the other churches are singing. Sing it to the music that the people want. And yeah, we sing hymns, and some would say they're boring. And people are not, don't hold back when they say that. They can be extremely critical. Perhaps it is to that those who are pastors and deacons, elders, are the very ones who receive sometimes very unhelpful comments from those in the congregation, sometimes members. The pressure can be on you as a leader, as an elder, as one preaching. And here's God's word for those who minister the word to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. The calling to serve Jesus Christ as a pastor is a high calling. It requires faithfulness. And people don't always appreciate it, just like Israel didn't appreciate Moses and grumbled and complained. That promise was good enough for Moses, it was good enough for Joshua, and it's good enough for those who lead you in the church. It's good enough even for whatever you do in your home or in service in the church. So there's something encouraging from God's promise to Joshua. <clears throat> but thirdly and finally, we look at God's promise to the church. And here we go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. God's promise to the church. Now, <clears throat> the book of Hebrews is masterful in describing the work and the glory of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Absolutely masterful. If you look back a little into chapter 11, <clears throat> you have there the so-called roll call of faith. And chapter 11 simply reminds us there of the many faithful saints of God in the Old Testament who faced difficulties and challenges and persecution. Why are they mentioned? Because these people were faithful to God. They knew the truth of this verse I'm trying to get across to you, you see. I will never leave you nor forsake you. They proved God to be absolutely true. And then you look a little further on at chapter 12 in Hebrews. What do you have? That great cloud of witnesses. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. There are many witnesses in heaven already. They believed the Lord. They believed this particular promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. And as it were, they are looking on at you. So how do you respond to all this? 
Perhaps it is that what your response and mine must be is just as Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every sin that hinders and persevere with the eyes of faith fixed on Jesus our Saviour. Now I read to you earlier from the from verse 1 of chapter 13 of Hebrews through to, to chapter 2 of verse 6. From verse 1 to verse 6. And you may think to yourself, well, here is a collection of real, random, spiritual statements which have not been covered anywhere else in the book of Hebrew. And here they are, and it seems almost like the author is saying, well, here's a good enough place to put them, you see. But there's a purpose in it. There is a purpose in it. Now, there are three commands given in the first three verses. Verse 1 tells us that brotherly love is to remain. It is an ongoing duty in every church to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Every single gospel church has members of differing levels of maturity and serving the Lord in different ways. Using Paul's analogy of the body made up of different members, it is quite inappropriate for the eyes then to say to the feet, because you can't see, foot, we don't need you. You're useless. We are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Brotherly love. The other command that is given is this, that we are not to neglect hospitality. In biblical times, both Jews and Gentiles would invite strangers into their homes for the night and provide food for them. Just go back to Genesis <clears throat> chapter 18, verses 1 through to 5, and you see exactly the point there. There is Abraham sitting in the very heat of the day in the shade of his tent flap, and he sees strangers coming towards him. He doesn't know who they are, but he recognises them as men who are on their way somewhere or other. He does the thing that is natural for him. He says, come in here. You know, let, let me get some water so that you can wash yourselves. Let me go and prepare food for you. That's typical of the hospitality that you find right in the beginning of the Bible. And it's something that we need to also do as well, you see. And if I may say this to you, it's not just giving a random stranger a bed to sleep in in your home. That might not be terribly wise. But if we take people into our homes and provide them with a meal, inviting your church friends, strangers, visitors, it is a means of building trust and friendship. And that's why it's so important. The third command that is given is that we are to remember those imprisoned or persecuted for faith in Jesus Christ, never to lose sight that they are suffering for Jesus. So we pray for them and uphold them where we can. Verse 4. <clears throat> it is there that the author urges believers to do all that they can to safeguard their own marriages and not to interfere in the marriage unions of others. I'm putting it to you very mildly, but that is what the author of, two, of the Hebrews is saying in that verse. 
And sin in this area is a great breach of trust and has a devastating effect upon those involved. And it damages severely the reputation of the church. So quite correctly, the author of Hebrews is saying, guard your marriage and do not do anything to destroy it. Verse 5, we are urged there to be content with what we have and not to covet what other people have. Be content with what you have. God's given it to you. Don't be looking for the fancy home in some posh area. Be content with your humble home that God has provided for you. That is really what it's saying. I don't have time to expand upon this, but you can read in Acts chapter 5 and verses 1 through to 11 the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Wasn't that exactly the thing? They weren't content. They wanted to have more. They wanted to impress people, impress the apostles. Now, there's a number of things that I've brought before you. How best can I bring them all together? What the author of Hebrews is doing is saying to us that this is kingdom life in a fallen world. This is nothing other than what you find in Matthew 5, 6 and 7 in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. It's kingdom life. Not everything that is found in in the Sermon on the Mount, but some very important, relevant matters you see. And if you read those three chapters in Matthew's Gospel, as you read these particular six verses here in Hebrews 13, you should be asking yourself the question, how can I live like that? How can I live in such a way that I would uphold these things and live for the glory of God in my home and in my community and in my church? How can I do it? And the answer is given in verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord commits himself to being with you and helping you. In the corresponding verses in the Old Testament that we've looked at, in the three cases, there are two negatives alone that are to be found in the sentence. And it is the words, not or nor, the two negatives, not and nor. But when you come to Hebrews 13.5, there are no less than five negatives to be found, and they are very strong. They, are, they become emphatic. And so you say, so what? So what? What does that mean to me? Those negatives make, here in Hebrews, make the promise emphatic and strong. So it's not that the Lord here is merely making a promise to you. It's not just a promise. But it's what the promise means. If I may try and illustrate it to you. And it's as if the Lord Jesus Christ then is is in your company. It's the Saviour and yourself. And of all things, suddenly he produces a pair of handcuffs. And you look on and you wonder what he's up to. And he opens the one 
a cuff on the, on the handcuff and he puts it around his wrist, locks it. And then he takes the other end and he grabs your wrist tenderly and puts the other one around the, the other part of the handcuff around your wrist. And he locks it. He takes the key and he throws it away. What's it, what am I trying to say to you? My dear brother and sister in Christ Jesus, that's the closeness of the Saviour to you and me. He's not a Saviour who's a million miles away, disinterested in you. He loves you so much and we don't even comprehend the measure of his love. And here's his promise. To you, I will never leave you or forsake you. <clears throat> Taking this promise a little further, every child of God here today has struggles. That's very certain. And some of these troubles don't just go away after a week or a few months. For some, the trouble, the burden is there every day and it goes on for years for example, <clears throat> you may have a genuine concern for a wayward son or daughter. A wayward son or daughter, they know the gospel. They've been brought to church in their childhood and teenage years. You've prayed with them, read the scriptures to them. You've done everything possible to try and point them to Christ. And there is your son, your daughter, hard-hearted, don't want this religious rubbish. And sometimes that can be quite insulting. And your heart goes out to your child. Oh, that they could see the love of Jesus Christ. And many, there are many times when you weep privately in your home because of the stubbornness of your child as you see them just going their own way, going farther and farther away from the Saviour, throwing away that which was precious, just, and the things that they've been taught. Uh, may I just remind you the precious promise of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But I do want to end <coughs> with a very something very precious. The Lord Jesus Christ, our precious Saviour, in his perfection as the Son of Man in this world, he knew unbroken fellowship with his Father in heaven. Unbroken fellowship. There are things there that I cannot explain to you. But that is very clear. Unbroken fellowship with his Father. At the moment came when he was crucified and he suffered on the cross and bore your sin on the cross. And as Matthew puts it in Matthew 27 and verse 46, there was that heart cry of agony that came from the Saviour's lips when he said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me?
you see suddenly this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, is being placed in jeopardy. Why did Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the dearly beloved Son of God, in taking on himself your sin, my sin, was part of the cost of his redemptive work. And as our sin bearer, he suffered in our place, bearing in a moment of time the anguish of our judgment and thus separation from God because of your sin and mine. And he had to endure that so that you would never have to face it as a child of God redeemed by Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That cry had to come from him. It came from his heart. And it's wonderful to realise that never, as a child of God, will you ever hear those words, um, why have you forsaken me? You will never be banished from the presence of Jesus Christ or from the presence of God. What a wonderful saviour we have in Jesus. And it makes the promise that we've looked at tonight even more precious and sweeter. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, may God write that promise upon our hearts and bring it to our remembrance often in our Christian lives. Amen.